Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Linda Laurel. Welcome to Our Voices Matter, a podcast dedicated to empowering us all to better understand each other. Our goal? To replace fear with knowledge, disdain with respect, and hate with love, one story at a time. So let's get to it. So I have to ask first, how's your dad? Dad is 94 years old, hanging in there. I would say he's basically hanging in there. I've I've learned something as my parents aged. My mom passed away in in April. um, That as as people get old, their their filters go away and their true nature shines. And my mom, as you may recall from your interviews, (laughs) being around her is pretty feisty and funny and could be a little irreverent and says, says the funniest things and it's kind of sometimes not the most politically correct things in the world, but she just was true, just Barbara Bush, you know, trans, total transparency. My dad is probably the most loving, kind-hearted, you know, he's got the, he's got the best human spirit of any human I know. He's always asking how the other guy's doing. You know, I said, dad, how are you feeling today? And, you know, he would deflect and talk, you know, try to talk about, you know, me or things going on. Um, but he, so he's a frail, old, 94 year old man with the biggest, most loving, caring heart of any human you'll ever know. Well, and I, I can only imagine how, how difficult these last few months have been for him since your mom passed. And, and I know you, the last time we spoke a few weeks ago, you said that um, one of your favorite things to do is to read to him. Talk to me about that. Well, I, I read over the past four or more years, ever since dad started getting sick and then mom started getting sick and they go in and out of Methodist hospital. I, I made kind of a habit of going over to read to them, both in the hospital and then when they were let, let out and at home while they were rehabilitating. And I'm, I'm estimating that we've probably read at least 15 books over the last four years out loud. Um, and we have most of it's most of them are historical novels. There's a lot about the Revolutionary War days and the forming of the nation. Uh, we've read every Bush family book that's been written. Uh, my mom's favorite books and my favorite books actually are from Candace Millard, who's written history, three different historical novels, beautifully written. Um, um, and mom and dad too, but we all loved just reading these books out loud because it brought the history to, to uh, you know, to life. The last book that I read, and actually my sister Dara came to town and my sister-in-law Margaret participated in the last few days of mom's life, but we read to mom the Barbara Bush memoir, which mom published in 1994. And you can imagine the life they lived. My dad was, a, you know, a war hero, a Yale man. They met and married early in life and first love kind of thing. And then had kids and business life in West Texas. And there were some pretty interesting stories about that. And this whole life of public service that mom participated in. She So for her to hear the story read back to her in her words was a real blessing to, to both of us. Really. What was her reaction? You know, she was very interested. She was, it brought back memories and, yeah. you know, so... My mom was alert, unlike dad. My dad's kind of in and out. He's, he's, his short-term memory is not that great. He can remember the funniest things from way back. Mom remembers everything from every you know every phase of her life. She did it until she passed away. Um, so she would add on to the story. I said, Mom, do you remember this? She said, yes. And then she'd add on to whatever 
little piece of the puzzle or that story might have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was, I think, I think her reaction was one of gratitude that you know that um, that she had you know that she could that this intervention could be kind of a pleasant thing for her to look forward. She was suffering from COPD, so she couldn't move without suffering from a lack of breath. And I can't even imagine the, you know, the, the discomfort of, of that condition. Right. And she was complaining. She never complained about, she had six childbirths and she, so she's used to suffering through pain. (laughs) And she never really complained about stuff. Yeah. You know, you could tell she was suffering. So for, to be as a son and, and as other family members participated to be able to, to, play a role in her care in that, in that personal way was really something I'm so, I'm really deeply grateful for. So, you know, the reason that, um, that I I wanted to talk to you and really the reason that I'm, I started this podcast and to talk to all of the guests as, as we were chatting right before we started, um, you know, we're at a really difficult moment in our nation's history. Um, This show is not meant to be about politics, but we are living in a very contentious political time. And my goal here is really to find and share stories that remind us all of our common humanity Mm -hmm. so that we can see in each other a little bit of ourselves, even if the person who is speaking and sharing that story is someone who we typically might not agree with. Um, So I'm going to ask you, if you would share a story with us, either a professional or personal story, where you felt as though you were misunderstood or you were not, um, you didn't belong, you felt shunned, you felt like you were labeled as the other for whatever reason. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm only a slightly a bit hesitant to talk about what I'm going to tell you, only because it's kind of self-serving and I'm going to sound very defensive. But back in the back in the late '80s, when my dad was already elected president, uh, the savings and loan industry was was crumbling. You know, there there were laws that were made at the time that allowed savings and loan industry um, executives to make high risk loans in real estate. And the federal government, you know, looked through each of these projects. I served on the board of an institution in Denver, Colorado. We had approval for every single loan that was made at the time. Um, and then the real estate markets in various industries or regions in the United States went down as the oil business went down, et cetera, et cetera. So Texas suffered, Colorado suffered. Every savings and loan in the, in the state of Colorado failed during that time. I was on the board of one of those that failed. Um, and so there was a, because I was the son of the president, this is where it sounds pretty defensive because I'm trying I feel like I was scapegoated um, to, as a, tool to get to my father and, and to diminish his chances for re-election. Um, but because I was the son of a, of a former president, myself and our fellow board members for Silverado Savings Loan were brought before Congress, <laughs> you know, which was a real spectacle. And then there was an administrative hearing um, that focused on, on issues that they brought up related to my service on the board. And it was, it was a kangaroo court type scenario. Um, and it was hard because everyone believed that I was guilty of a crime. And, and there were posters put up in, in Washington, D.C. that, you know, kind of lots of kind of like the locker up chains, like lock him up with my picture, you know, on posters that were put up on 
on signs that you could see as you drove by. And I, I saw them. My mom and dad, who lived in Washington at the time, saw them. Um, and it was hard for my wife in particular because, you know, we, we had a, we, uh, like three little kids and a stable, happy life. And that life got turned upside down mm. because of this. It, business was already, because the oil business was going down. I was in the oil business at the time. Was hard, so we, we ended up having to move from Colorado just to get away from the hostility, and so so that was so really. How did, how did how did you deal with that? What what did you learn from from I, that experience? You know, it's, a, it's a hard thing to put in words, but I I never let it bother me, and it, it sounds crazy because obviously probably right now sound like it did bother me, but it 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 really didn't bother me. I lived my daily life. I exercised. I love my kids. I was trying to be the best husband I could be, the best provider I could be, the best citizen I could be in, in Denver. Um, but it was just such an overwhelming tsunami of, you know, animus towards me that just picking up and leaving was probably the, it was the easy thing to do. It, emotionally, it must have been draining, but I don't recall ever being depressed. I never turned to alcohol or, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't beat anybody. Did you lose friends over it? Um Great question. Uh, if they were truly friends, no. Um, I don't know if there were people that, that might have considered themselves friends of mine that never spoke to me again because they thought I was guilty of something mm-hmm. terrible. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Mm-hmm. I was confronted on streets in New York uh, once and in, in Denver, Colorado, four or five times by people who accosted me and got in my face and said, you know, you're, you're a crook or you should be in jail or, you know, I don't know, give the money back as though I had ripped them off of billions of dollars of taxpayer funds. I was actually sued, by the way, for $500 million. And I was I was a young father with three kids and a little business that was trying to trying to do well at a downtime in the oil business. And I didn't have any, I didn't have a million dollars, not to mention $500 million. And I told my kids that when they grew up and got older, they, they should be, I mean, what other, who other? What other dad has ever been sued for $500 million? It makes you feel kind of important. You know? <laughs> in, in the way that you really don't want to feel important. Yeah, right? well, truly no. Right. Yeah. But, you know, but it was, yeah, it, anyway, the whole thing was understandable. Yeah, it didn't, I don't know that I lost friends, but I didn't, I didn't change my life. I was pretty fortunate, I think, to be raised by parents that gave me a pretty solid grounding in my life, mm-hmm. you know, confidence and, um, Humility and I don't know, just qualities that wouldn't allow me to to be sunken or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to kind of take got to get off track as a result of right. something like this. It was kind of out of my control. This is a, an interesting professional um, uh, story, an example of what you know what we're talking about here on a on a personal side. Um, I know that you, as a child, um, had dyslexia. Yes. Correct. Yes. So t- tell us a little bit about that, that and, and what that felt like as a as a young person. That's another great example of maybe feeling like the other because I'm in in classrooms um, as a young boy where all the other students, most of the other students, I assume, could read at a grade level a, appropriate appropriately for the grade level we were in. And my mother came to a third grade reading session where the book was being passed around and all the kids were reading one by one. It got to me and I couldn't read the words on the page or couldn't read them coherently. 
And so the kid to my left intervened and helped me. The kid to the right, the teacher helped her mom realize, you know, this is her son couldn't read. So she did everything she could over weekends to get to remediate me. And it did make me feel like the other in that when kids were out playing in the playground or playing pickup, you know, baseball or whatever, I was in a reading class trying to be remediated to help. And, and at the time, no one really, I don't think, knew the word dyslexia as it related to learning disabilities. So, yeah, that was that was tough. I worked harder than probably every other kid in the classroom just to keep up. And um, so so I felt different in that way. Right. I didn't know. I don't think people I don't recall ever being shamed. You know, I don't recall being put down by my friends. I don't feel I don't recall being cast aside. And I do remember my parents worrying very much about it and trying to intervene to help me in every way they could, especially mom. Um, but and I, and just to put a little happy note at the end of that chapter, a sad chapter, you know, as I grew up, I found things that interested me. So I started reading Sports Illustrated and Sporting News. Um, and, 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 and as you develop int- professional interests or academic interests in college and through business school and in life, you know, those interests are intrinsically motivating. And I've, I found that my reading competency maybe didn't improve to where normal people could read, but I, 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 was, I became a competent reader and I got good grades and at the end of my call after a couple of years of trying to figure out how to, how to have to live a good life at Tulane University, I ended up doing really well for the last couple of years and ended up getting a master's in business in five years there, you know, out of the uh, combined program. So I don't know, I, I just have, a, I've developed a strong core belief that if you have an intrinsic motivation to do anything, you can do it well or do it competently enough to be successful. And you can overcome whatever the obstacle might be. You can overcome the obstacle. Mm-hmm. My brother George is a kind of a good, sets a good role model for that in some ways. And this is kind of off the topic, but he became an artist without having any artistic skills because he put his mind to it. And now he paints and he's using his painting in a very philanthropic and incredible way and, you know, brings him joy and comfort and peace. But he's really gotten pretty, if he can become, you know, a great artist, you know, (laughs) then we can do anything. Anything's possible, right? Yes. He can become president. (laughs) We can be in (laughs) (laughs) I don't think he's going to appreciate hearing that. (laughs) I think he would. I don't know. My brother, when when he was 16, went to Andover. Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts. So it was away from home. He'd come home. My brother Marvin, who was six and I was eight at the time, would do anything to get him to play with us. And so one night he said, "Okay, I'll play with you." We pulled out a BB gun, and we had a long hallway on Briar Drive in Houston, Texas, in our house. And he said, "Okay, I'm going to count to ten. So I went first, and I started running as fast as I could. And he shot me in my in my ass. I was <laughs> And so when people say, what's it like to have a father that was president and a brother that was president? I said, look, my dad, it was a fulfillment of an expectation. He's my hero and he's, he's got this amazing, he leans in with love, he's wise and he's competent. You know, but my brother shot him <laughs> as a president. It's like, I can't imagine him being president. <laughs> and, he, yet? and yet? And yet? You know, yeah, only in America. Only in America. Okay, that's, that's a great segue. That's a great segue. Because America's in kind of a, um, we're, we're having some serious issues right now. Um, t- 
tell me what you're doing right now professionally. And I, and I, I know some of what you're doing t- is taking you overseas to China and, and other parts of the world. I'm curious about what kinds of conversations you're having um, in, a, in a business setting and, and personal overseas um, as it relates to what's going on in our country right now. Well, inevitably, people express concern about how divided our country's become. Um, I'm deeply concerned by it. I don't like the tone. I don't like the demagoguery. I don't like the pure political nature of some of the words that are spoken and some of the content of the of the dialogue. Um, I, I'm very discouraged, you know, with this divide and conquer and bully type mentality in politics. And it's not just our current president, there are others that practice it as well. And it's not just Republicans, it's Democrats as well. Having said that, I, I could never have imagined in my wildest dreams, having been a part of two presidencies in, in my family, that there could be a president who could be so disrespectful of the office of the presidency in the way he treats other people. We, he, we, the United States is the, it's kind of the symbol to the world of benevolence and respectfulness and humility in doing good for others. And this president has kind of taken that whole image and shattered it and kind of made it all about us, America first. And it's all about him as a person. And I did this and I did that. And this, you know, my, my dad, who I've already shared with you, is very frail. You know, occasionally we, we commiserate over the fact that this office is now being being shattered or being being. Um, kind of spoiled by this rotten um, behavior. And, and who cares whether you're a Republican or Democrat, whether you believe in, you know, tax cuts or not, or, you know, big deficits or big military spending, whatever the issue is, it's not about issues to me, you know, because I think we could have had a more effective president be president, but then we're not talking about politics. We're talking about basic human qualities of, you know, respectfulness of others and, you know, and projecting love and kindness. There's nothing wrong with leading with love, you know, and, and yet there seems to be no love and it's yet in the, in the dialogue. And it's discouraging that more people don't call it out, that don't speak the truth about leaning in with love. I, don't you find that really disappointing? It, that's the whole reason I'm doing this show. Um, So for the last um, couple of years, you know, since the 2016 election, when the divide really got even wider, um, I was thinking to myself, you know, what can I as a as an individual do? Thank you. It's great. Seriously. Well, it it really um, has affected me in a very deep level, like it has so, so many um, millions of Americans and. I, I just feel like we all have to do whatever it is we can do on an individual level. And I think at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is having conversations like this. It's reminding people that we're all human. We all have frailties. None of us is perfect, but we all deserve respect. We, we have to give respect in order to receive it. We just have to get back to a real basic level because everything is happening up here at the political level. But I think that it's going to it's going to be at the grassroots level with people sitting around, you know, co- coffee tables and having conversations like this when we finally get back to knowing and understanding each other. Right. So so I, I wake up every day with two core 
um, beliefs. One is that every human is born with the same potential um, for, for being civilized and realizing fullest potential. And sadly, too many people are born in, in, uh, on the wrong side of the tracks or with the wrong set of resources or the wrong set of mentors or the wrong, in the wrong conditions. So they don't realize their fullest potential. I believe everyone has a potential to realize a God-given ability that's often not achieved, not because of their own fault, but because of circumstances that can be changed, you know, with the environment they're in. Two, I believe government isn't positioned to solve our problems. That this political discourse that's, that's creating disharmony and, a, a, you know, division among people and races and economic brackets and all these things, that, that the government can't solve that problem, but, they're, they're, but that people, you know, rolling up their sleeves and taking responsibility in their own communities or taking responsibility for their own neighbor. And this gets to my dad's, you know, proclamation uh, back 30 years ago about points of light, that there are thousands of organizations around the United States in every community for every problem in America, the problem's being solved by some group somewhere, oftentimes powered by volunteers. And we need to take our democracy. My view is we need to take our democracy back. We can't wait for Washington or Austin or state capitals to fix our problems. People have the, the potential to solve the problem in their community, to lift that little kid that's suffering because he doesn't have books in his home by providing books or helping them with mentoring and tutoring or helping the elderly you know, that doesn't have the advantages. We can take that responsibility in our own hands. And the beauty of that, Linda, which gets right to the heart of your and my core concern, is that serving others unites us as a people. It brings out our basic humanity, um, which bring, which is naturally designed to attract us to one another, to find, you know... Well, so, and, and no better example of that than Harvey, yeah. okay? Harvey, Harvey, Maria, you know, Florence, I mean, all of right. them. But, I mean, we, we lived Harvey. Right. We lived Harvey in this community. And people didn't right. ask what, you know, what's your political affiliation before they brought the boat up to the door to help get you out of harm's way. Exactly. So it's, right. you know, why can't we be like that <laughs> when we're not in a, in a disaster situation? That's what we, we have to get back to. So, so on a national basis, when Dad talked talk about points of light, there were 32 million Americans volunteering at some time during a given year. Today, there are 64 million Americans volunteering. They volunteer with more hours and with higher impact than they did 30 years ago. So there's a trend and a movement. More corporations are recruiting, you know, young professionals to a culture of uh, within the company of being able to serve the community where they work. So that that's the thing that attracts and retains, you know, more young people in these in the corporate environment. So there's uh, there's a, there are some hopeful and very positive trends if you look at the big national trend. And young people like my son Pierce, who, who runs the biggest Big Brothers Big Sisters organization in the United States. I um, mean, as a mentor to this great little kid, Jalen, who was a little kid now, he's a sophomore in high school. You know, so many people are making a huge difference. In, and there's some great examples of it among the youth, which is a very hopeful thing for me. Absolutely. Okay, let's switch gears now to one other thing that I know. Um, you're spending a lot of time overseas in China. Yeah. So um, share with our audience uh, what, what you're doing in China. 
Well, first of all, I, I start my first visit to China was in 1975. China was in the dark days of the Cultural Revolution. Chairman Mao was the authoritarian, you know, communist leader. There were no freedoms. People couldn't choose where to live. They, they had two colors of Mao suits that they wore, gray and blue. I mean, it was like very dark, dark. They burned coal, so the air was polluted. Everything about China was kind of miserable in 1975. And so to see China through its through its open door policy adopt you know market um, incentives and motivation or whatever to 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 grow their economy to now where it's the second largest economy in the world you could never have dreamt that being possible 43 years ago and so to see them do that there have been hundreds of millions of people lifted out of poverty in China over the past 40 years there have been people enjoying more freedoms than you could have ever dreamt possible 40 years ago. It's been the biggest freedom movement on the face of the planet in, 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 in all, all of time because they're such a huge country. So the numbers are, are large. And freedom-loving people around the world should be celebrating this rise. And yet there's a, there's a thesis, Linda, which is what concerns me, called the Thesutides Trap, where over the past 500 years, somebody did a study and when there's a, an established power that faces a rising power, and China's perceived to be a rising power, 12 out of the 16 times that's been documented over the past 500 years, of, years have ended in war. And so, there, so there's this concern that their rise is going to force us as the, as the established power to confront them in a conflict. And it's the, you think there's a real possibility of that? I, I think so. I think people that are ill-informed, who view China's rise as a threat, could possibly pull the trigger and do something stupid or you know, engage in a conflict. The rhetoric we're hearing today out of Washington among congressmen and senators, the president and the vice president, is, is kind of leaning in that direction. As though, but China's rise is, is actually an opportunity for the world. We, we share, this gets back to your theme, we share a common humanity. Chinese people send hundreds of thousands of students to America every year. They're educated here. They're indoctrinated in our ways. They aspire to live like Americans. They want fresh air. They want freedom. They want opportunities to raise their kids in a good environment. They don't need to be a democracy like we do. Not every country has the conditions for a, for a vibrant democracy. In fact, I wonder whether our democracy really works to see machine guns being used in schools and you know, synagogues and you know, all over the place. It's crazy that we don't have a, a more vibrant democracy that rejects, you know, these kinds of terrible conditions that we live in, where we have so much poverty and teenage pregnancy rates and violent crimes. I mean, our democracy is failing in so many ways. Anyway, most, country, most countries aren't set to have a vibrant voting-like democracy. And China's system has allowed it to to lift people out of poverty, create an environment where freedom, and they aspire to be like us, so we should embrace this movement. And yet in America, you know, we allow politicians who are ill-informed and maybe others that are influencers tell us the Chinese rise represents a threat. We're creating an enemy out of a natural ally. And it's, 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 it's shameful and it's terrible for the future. We have human needs. There's another thing I think about every day I wake up. There are huge needs for humanity to sustain life on Earth. We have an Earth that needs to be protected. We have a growing population. We have 7.2 billion people today. It's going to grow to 9.8 billion by 
2050? How are we going to feed those people? How are we going to provide health care for those people? How is the, you know, all the environmental conditions going to be sustained so that life on earth can be, can be comfortable and that we can enjoy God's beautiful design of it? Um, and so it's going to take every nation and every human in every nation to work in our common interests and our common humanity to solve these problems. And yet we seem to be moving in the opposite direction. We, America. We, America, yeah. seem to be disengaging from the right. world. We're dropping out of you know, climate control. We're doing all these things that are just the antithesis of what we should be doing. We should be leading and we should be welcoming others. My dad, I think one of the proudest things I would say about dad's presidential leadership and his leadership throughout his life is he always recruited others to help. In the Gulf War, he didn't do it alone. We weren't the war world's one police. He convinced the Congress, he convinced the UN, he convinced the world that we needed a coalition to kick Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. He attacked a helpless little nation and he righted a wrong. He did the same thing in working for the Americans with Disabilities Act. He did the same thing by raising taxes and cutting spending. You, you have to work with people to solve human, you know, conditions mm-hmm. or challenges. And, and we need to get back to that. So as it relates to, to what you're doing in China, what, what are you doing um, to help move us toward what you just articulated? So, we, so my dad started a conference in 2003 called the Bush-China-U.S. Relations Conference. And he brought together stakeholders. He held, while he was physically able, he held five different conferences over like 15 years. Um, he, he, he's no longer capable of doing that. So he handed the reins over to me. So in 2015, we had a conference on the topic of infectious disease, where we brought stakeholders from the U.S. and China together to talk about in the case of an outbreak of SARS or Ebola, how can our governments, how can our nonprofits, how can our corporations work together to respond to it so that human suffering is reduced and we, and we, you know, control the spread of, of a pandemic kind of thing. And it was really successful. People from both sides thought it was productive. So I'm continuing this conference. I'm going to give you a little sneak preview of something that's going to be announced later. Okay, so great. Are we breaking news? We're breaking news. We're breaking news. Breaking news. I love it. <laughs> so I, I had formed the Bush-China-U.S. Relations Foundation with Dad's Blessing like a year and a half ago. Um, the University of Texas, where there's no real George H.W. Bush or George W. Bush or Bush family legacy, you know, institutional interest, mm-hmm. um, has agreed in the LBJ school, which is interesting, the, the uh, public yeah. policy, yeah. to change the name of their China public policy um, center to the George H.W. Bush Center for U.S.-China Relations. It's run by a fabulous China expert, a guy named David Firestein. He's got a good team there. So it's going to be a university-level, presidential legacy-type platform for for doing kind of putting this conference on that we're talking about for 2018, which will be the the seventh such conference. 2019. I'm sorry, 19, yeah, Mm because 18 is now. And and we're going to have other programs. Programmatic activities, some kind of back channel type things, but other more 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 visible type things. But we're going to try to be through David's leadership and through the center's leadership, a a, a place where dialogue can be held, um, where this where the central 
kind of element of it that's important is there's going to be civility in the dialogue. So it'll have the George Herbert Walker Bush type of respectfulness of one another. You can have where I have, have be able to air sharply different opinions or similar opinions, whatever the opinion spectrum might be, but we're going to do it with, uh, with respectfulness and civility. And I'm really excited about having this UT platform now for a Bush family legacy, and especially one that's so critically important at this particular time to avoid war and to build an alliance. We need to have a voice that's reasonable that brings people together to find our common interests. Exactly, exactly. So when is the conference in 2019? It's probably going to be, we don't have the date. It's going to be in August. It's going to be, we're going to time it for the the big coming out party for the center. So I'm giving you like a big preview. Okay, so will (laughs) it it be at the center? or Um, The center is actually the... Of offices, there's no real center. The okay. center, yeah, the center is the, is okay. the LBJ school basically. Okay. So it'll be in Austin. Okay, you'll well, be the first in there. Uh, thank you very yeah. much. I, I love having the scoop. That's fantastic. So as we wrap this up, um, I want to ask you, what do you think when you think about? And you were so candid in, in talking about the um, um, the savings and loan um, situation and what you went through there and. Um, what do you you think are the, the biggest misconceptions about you? And the reason that I'm asking, and I'm going to ask this of, of all of our guests, yeah. is just that... I'll tell you what it is. Okay, go. Well, you can tell me why you want to No, I'm, I'm asking because I just think that, that you know, people d- decide or they, make, they have a perception of what somebody is. Yeah. And it's not always the truth. And often that perception is born of ignorance. They just don't know. Yeah. And so in my case, <laughs> I get this all the time. So when I engage in dialogue with people that don't know me, they, they come with preconceived expectations for what I must be like. Right. And because I come from a Republican, conservative, blah, 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 family, they might think I'm not, you know, I'm anti-gay or that I'm, you know, so they, they label you before even meeting me. Right. Or that I'm spoiled or that I'm elitist or... Something and people oftentimes express, I think, openly express surprise at how how you know normal <laughs> or you know they're just surprised that I'm not a stuck up you know that I've got, got a big huge giant ego that I'm kind of driving and you know, I think people think I fly in a private plane and have limos. You don't. Do you? <laughs> no. <laughs> so maybe we will. We can. You know, drove yourself here this morning. I did. Good things happen to good people. You never know. But I think there's an expectation that people think that we are somehow privileged. And I'll tell you, mom would never allow that. (laughs) And you're, you know, you wear your emotions on your sleeve. I mean, I've interviewed you many times. I do. I I I was going to say, I don't think we've ever got through an interview where you haven't teared up talking about something because you clearly. did pretty well today up until this moment. You did. Thank you for doing that. But you know you're you're very passionate, and um, especially when you're talking about your family and and, and mom in particular. Um, so I really appreciate you um, being so candid and open and and honest. And um, if there's if there's one thing that you could leave people with today um, that would give them hope for our future as a nation in terms of bringing us back together, what would that be? I think I think what brings us together is much more powerful than what divides us. I think the human nature of, of, you know, finding common ground, of looking for the best in others, of serving others, 
is a more powerful force than the negative forces that, that are out there. And there's evidence of growing numbers of people who are serving. So you can, you can document it. And I'm just, I really do hold out high hopes for our country, for the world, for humanity, that people generally are, are, you know, have, have good hearts. Well, I think by sharing your story and sharing the other stories and having all of our voices out there, um, we'll, we'll get there. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for this great mission of yours. Thank you so much, Neil. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for sharing this time with us, for giving our guests permission to speak, and for having the courage to listen with an open mind. I'm Linda Laurel, reminding you that our voices matter.